1: I'm Emma Kennedy. Welcome to Why, the podcast that explores those tricky conundrums and questions that live in the back of our minds. There are many things I recall thinking when first watching the Jurassic Park films, like why would they leave the oversight of an overly complicated automated security system to one disgruntled employee? Or why, when the resident dinosaur hunter man warns about the potentially catastrophic weakness of that security system, John Hammond shrugs his shoulders and asks everyone if they'd like some sea bass. Why aren't the giant hamster balls that roam the park covered in dinosaur shit? Why did anyone think cloning the dangerous meat-eater snarly dinosaurs was the best choice for a family-based theme park? And why would anyone think buying a dinosaur as a weapon was a good idea when we now know, for a fact, that a velociraptor can be defeated by some pretty basic gymnastics from a small girl? It's pretty obvious that all this was purely imagined for entertainment. In fact, it's widely acknowledged that the main thing we know about dinosaurs is that we don't know very much. The last major breakthrough in paleontology was over 100 years ago when it was proven that many dinosaur species had feathers. But the data gathering, analysis and scientific predictions continue. So let's separate fact from fiction and ask today on why can I outrun a T-Rex?
0: Fossils are not common. The vast majority of those species are known from one single skeleton, and even that is usually an incomplete skeleton.
1: Dr David Hone is a paleontologist and reader at Queen Mary University, London.
0: Semi-regularly see online people going like, where's the list of every dinosaur fossil that's been found? And it's like, museums don't have that list for their own collection. The idea that there's some global list of absolutely everything ever, it just doesn't exist.
1: Now, your particular interest lies in the behaviour of dinosaurs. and There's a difference of opinion on how fast the T-Rex could run. Some scientists say it could get up to 80 miles per hour. Others say it couldn't run at all. What camp are you in, Dave?
0: Well, they couldn't run in a biomechanical sense they don't get both feet off the ground at the same time they're kind of big power walkers and then the question becomes how fast can they actually go and as you say we we don't have whole skeletons or you know even that much data so we're doing lots of calculations of estimates of weight and estimates of the amount of muscle that they have and then how much base physiology they've got to produce an, you know, an estimate rather than an actual factual number of how quick they might be able to go. I've said in the past that I was at the upper end of that. I'm now probably at the, the lower end, but I sure as hell wouldn't want to try and outrun one. Um, I think I'd lose.
1: How do they work out the, the estimate? Is it, is it based on fossils of footprints and how far away they are from each other? I mean, are, do those things exist?
0: Yeah, we've absolutely done calculations of speed based on footprints. But, of course, the problem you've got there is you don't know if that's as fast as they could go. That's only as fast as they were going when they left those footprints. And kind of by definition, those footprints are often in mud, which isn't, of course, the best medium to try and run quickly in. So, yeah, things like the overall body mass estimates, we have the skeletons. They're fossilized now, but we can work out how heavy they would have been if they were living bone. We have marks on bones that show where muscles attach. And we can look at modern relatives of dinosaurs to see what kind of muscles they have in what places. So that gives us an estimate of how much muscle they have and where all those muscles sit, which will tell you things like balance points. We can allow for things like lungs. We can allow for things like hollow bones. We can cross-reference that against models of living animals. And our mass estimates actually for things like T-Rex, where we've done a lot of work on this, are probably very accurate, you know, within 10%. And you'd get that kind of error bar with, you know, humans or elephants or anything, because some people are heavier and other people are thinner, even for the same skeleton. So that kind of stuff we're actually very, very good at.
1: T-Rex is especially sort of modern culture. We're sort of obsessed with them, aren't we? Especially Hollywood. Are you a bit bored of the usual suspects when it comes to dinosaurs that everybody knows about. I mean, which dinosaurs should we be talking about? Which ones are the actually interesting ones?
0: For me, it's protoceratops. I mean, I I do love my T-Rex. I've done a fair bit of work on tyrannosaurs at at various times, and they're very, very interesting animals. And there's actually a lot of interesting work we can do on them that we can't do with some others. But yeah, we've named about 1500 species of dinosaurs now. And I think most people would struggle to name more than five or six. So there's an enormous variety out there. And there's everything from, you know, chicken-sized cats size one kilogram animals up to stuff that's, you know, 40, 50 tons. It's not just T-Rex, Velociraptor, and Diplodocus. As I say, Protoceratops is a real favorite of mine, and I think it's something that we should be doing as scientists more research on. It's a little animal, maybe two metres total length, including the tail. And it's a relative of Triceratops, as you might guess from the name. It doesn't have the horns and it's much, much smaller, but otherwise it looks quite similar. And they're super important and interesting because we have so many fossils of them, well over 100 complete skeletons, with everything from embryos in eggs all the way up to big old adults. And we find them in groups and clusters that are age segregated. So we have babies together, small animals together, mid-sized animals together, and adults together. So they were a pack animal. Well, maybe. And this is the problem of deriving behavioural data from the fossil record. Because, of course, even if these animals lived in groups their entire lives, most of the time they'll die one at a time. Um, And even if they mostly lived on their own and only came together for part of the year, if there's you know millions of animals locking around for half a million years which there were there's still a chance we'll catch them when they happen to be in those groups or maybe they're doing something like lions where the females fundamentally live in groups and males might live in that group but might be solitary so some might live in groups and some might be solitary and of course picking up that kind of thing is then very very hard so
1: what fascinates you about Proceratops?
0: For me, it's it's because that data exists. You know, I, I constantly get questions about Velociraptor, which lived in the same time and place. Velociraptor and Protoceratops. There's even a famous fossil of one of each together locked in combat. Um, and, of course, Velociraptor is an, is an absolute A-lister thanks to Jurassic Park. Mm. And I get probably more questions about that from kids' events and interviews and things than... than anything except t-rex and yet we've got three maybe four decent skeletons of velociraptor i've been to museums that have 30 or 40 skeletons of Protoceratops on its own and of course with paleontology and dinosaurs in particular fossils are not common the vast majority of those species are known from one single skeleton and even that is usually an incomplete skeleton half a dozen bones is quite a good find So when you have a hundred animals basically preserved from snout to tail tip with every single bone often very well preserved, you can start looking at things like how did they grow and how did they move and what were they doing in a level of detail that's basically impossible for 99.9% of dinosaur species. That's why I've done so much work on it, because I can work on this in a way that I can't on almost any other species of dinosaur.
1: Did it have fur or did it have feathers? Do you have any sense of of the colour of it? How can scientists possibly tell that, all of those things, from fossils? Can you talk us through the science about discovering, identifying and gathering data?
0: Absolutely. We, We can do bits of this for certain things and then inevitably we're making inferences based on those bits. So in the case of protoceratops, until relatively recently we'd have said it would have been scaly. There are various animals preserving scales on them. Dinosaurs are an offshoot of reptiles. Reptiles are scaly. That all kind of makes sense. But then a specimen turned up in China in the early 2000s that is now held in Frankfurt in Germany, which is a little thing called Psittacosaurus, which is like an early version of Protoceratops. And it is mostly scaly, but it's got some very long, thin feather-like filaments. So they look like really big hairs or almost like a porcupine quill sitting along its back at the base of its tail. And we have several specimens of this now and some other relatives as well. And that suggests that actually on this branch of dinosaurs with these, the horned dinosaurs as they're called, with these frills and these often big horns on the head, that they actually may have combined scales and these plumes. Now protoceratops doesn't preserve that. We get bones, but we don't usually get skin for it. But in the same way that if I dug up a fossil rat, I'd go, well, every living rat we know of is furry this animal was probably furry the ones where we do have good skeletons or good preservation of skin and soft tissue for close relatives of ceratopsians have these plumes that implies that they were quite possibly present in Protoceratops too so even if we don't directly have it we can infer it when we get into things like color that's even more restricted but again we can do it for a handful of specimens and this comes down to these things called melanosomes and melanosomes are basically these tiny 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 i mean extraordinarily tiny subcellular little packages that contain color we have them in our skin too it gives you color to your skin it gives you color to your hair and other things but reptiles have them mammals have them birds have them and it turns out that unusually the shape and size of these is closely correlated to the kind of color that they contain so the analogy i always give is if you go to b and q and red paint is always in round tins and black paint is always in square tins and blue paint is always in a triangular tin you don't actually need to open it and look at the paint inside to know what color is in there we've got the shape and that shape does preserve in some fossils and therefore we can restore the color
1: But I suppose if you think about animals that are alive today, like some lizards have extraordinary colours on their skin. And certainly there are animals like zebras and tigers and leopards that that have spots and stripes and, and whatever. Can you make those assumptions about dinosaurs?
0: Well, in at least a couple of cases, we can directly see it. So yeah, that Psittacosaurus I mentioned just a minute ago actually has some spots on its body. The color patterns show up on that specimen. And some of the others, when we look at the, these melanosomes in the colors, we can see that they have red and white stripes. There's a thing called Sinosoropteryx, a little kind of feathered predator about a meter long from China, and it had an orange and white striped tail. So we can absolutely start pulling some of that stuff together. The other side of that and then, as you say, is, you know, absolute inference, you know, Very large animals today tend to be fairly uniformly coloured. They often can't hide very well. You know, if you're a whale, a bit of basic camouflage of kind of being darker on top and lighter underneath makes a lot of sense. Or if you're an elephant, just being at least vaguely similar to the background colour gives you a tiny bit of camouflage. But you can't really hide an animal that's five tonnes, let alone some of the big dinosaurs that are 50 tonnes. Whereas small ones, particularly if they're living in you know, forested environment, lots of dappled light and things like that. And if we combine that with data on their eyes, which tells you whether or not they might have been nocturnal or diurnal, can give you an impression that, yeah, maybe these ones were had a dapple pattern or a stripe pattern to match their background and hide better.
1: How do you get data about dinosaurs' eyes from fossils?
0: Well, happily, there's the big holes in the skull, the orbit. Those are usually a very close match for the eyeball inside. And on top of that, dinosaurs have a thing called a sclerotic ring. This is the sort of thing most people have never heard of, and this is classic mammal superiority-ness, where <laughs> everyone just associates what is human or what is mammalian with being normal or what is being right. And actually mammals are the odd ones out in that we got rid of sclerotic rings. But birds have them, reptiles have them, amphibians have them, and fish have them. And these are a little ring of bony plates that sit on the eyeball and help give it its structure. If you look at x-rays or photos of owl Skeletons. Owls don't just have like a ring, they have like a little turret. They have little like poppy out eyeball turrets from their sclerotic rings. They're particularly weird. They are rare, but they do turn up for dinosaurs. And that really gives you a sense not just of the size of the eyeball overall but even the size of the pupil and then that of course is critical for light gathering and so that can tell you whether or not this is an eye that really needs to suck the light in because they're probably nocturnal or is less bothered because they're living outside in the daylight where there's bright light.
1: Gosh that's absolutely fascinating. So the the dinosaurs that are more akin to lizards, did they shed skin?
0: So dinosaurs are not particularly close to lizards. In the grand scheme of things, they are reptiles. But birds are literally dinosaurs. So birds have descended from a group of predatory dinosaurs. And so birds are literally living dinosaurs. And then their nearest living relatives are actually the crocodilians. So crocodiles, alligators, caiman, gharials, and some other bits and bobs in there. And those don't shed their skins in the way that lizards and snakes classically do of peeling off the entire thing in one go. They shed actually more like we do. We, We get rid of dandruff. Those are little flakes of skin. And crocodilians and birds with their feet are doing something similar where they're knocking off chunks at a time. So A, we predict that dinosaurs do it that way anyway, because both their nearest ancestors and their descendants do it that way. But also we have the equivalent of dinosaur dandruff. I've actually published a paper on this. I was the (laughs) co-author. I didn't do most of the work. I won't take the big credit and glory, but I was on the paper where we described literal dinosaur dandruff, these little flakes of skin that were found between the bits of feathers and have the exact same like right composition of skin cell types to be shed in this way rather than being shed in a lizard way so yeah they're not peeling a big skin like you would from a snake they're basically dandruff shedders
1: do you think that all the dinosaurs that existed have been found now or do you think there are, there are more out there
0: oh God, yes. And I wouldn't even want to guess. My last book, i devoted about half a chapter to this problem. And the short answer is, A, there are definitely more. Uh, I mean, unquestionably, we're nowhere near the end of finding them. But we really don't know if we found 1% or 10% or 60%. My guess is it's actually probably more like the 1%. So when we've got 1,500 species, and I think we found 1%, there is an awful lot more to find. Paleontologists are naming something in the realm of 40 to 50 new species a year, and we've been keeping that up for about 10, 12 years now. So, you know, that's, you know, hundreds right there, and that shows absolutely no sign of slowing down.
1: Which sort of makes it even more infuriating that people only know about, like, basically three dinosaurs. It's ridiculous, isn't it? Have have there ever been any huge mistakes made when investigated dinosaurs?
0: Oh, yeah, loads. I mean, it's impossible not to because you're always working from incomplete information you know we don't have complete skeletons we don't have access to all the information that is out there you know i semi-regularly see online people going like where's the list of every dinosaur fossil that's been found and it's like museums don't have that list for their own collection the idea that there's some global list of absolutely everything ever it just doesn't exist so yeah you know most famously in the 1800s when we had the bone wars going on in north america and every single new thing that was pulled out of the ground was being named as a new species and half the time that was one someone else had already named. The Bone Wars were mostly a competition between two North American paleontologists called Cope and Marsh. And despite the fact that it's always associated with dinosaurs, their biggest competition was actually over fossil mammals. But basically, both of them were pumping huge amounts of money into digging up absolutely everything they could get their hands on because this is the early days of paleontology, the early days of exploration of the US and the Midwest, where stuff was just lying out on the ground and whoever got to it first could get the biggest and best stuff into the museums and with the biggest and best fossils with the more money and the more prestige and fame that went with them. But in that rush to name absolutely everything and then particularly when you've got rivals, if two of you dig something up at a similar time, you will both write your little scientific paper and try and name it, and kind of ignore the other guy. And, of course, again, this is the late 1800s. Nowadays, I publish a paper, it comes out online, and within seconds, anyone on the planet can download it. Back then, if you didn't have access to the right bit of paper that might have been published six months ago in a journal you hadn't heard of, you didn't know it existed. So lots of that kind of thing went on. I guess the thing that probably went wrong in the biggest sense was a thing called Dolo's Law, which really kind of screwed up our understanding of birds for a very, very long time. So Dolo had this idea in an evolutionary sense that once a feature had disappeared, it could never come back, which we now know is not true. That's not how genes work. You can lose something and still carry the genes for it and maybe it can reappear later. But that was important because birds have a furcula, a wishbone, and dinosaurs didn't. And although even back in the early 1900s, and we're talking 1910, 1930 kind of time, there was a strong suggestion that birds might actually have descended from dinosaurs. And bear in mind, we had very few small dinosaurs at this point. We didn't have any feathered dinosaurs at this point. There was no furcula, and the assumption was, well, Dolo's law applies... If dinosaurs lost their furcula, it cannot have re-evolved in birds, therefore birds are not dinosaurs. And A, Dolo's law was wrong, and B, dinosaurs had a furcula, we just hadn't dug one up at this point. And that meant we probably should have worked out that birds were dinosaurs about 50 to 60 years earlier than we actually did. Or at least got it properly confirmed. And I'd like to think that that would be a change.
1: So we've heard that paleontologists are naming 40 to 50 new species of dinosaurs every year, and that competition to find the best fossils can sometimes get out of hand. But I'm wondering if it's scientifically possible for a crazed billionaire to recreate dinosaurs from DNA. Is it ever going to be possible?
0: I mean, for dinosaurs, no. That's the short answer. The slightly longer answer is no, because there's absolutely no possible hope of even getting fragments of genetic material from 65-plus million years ago, let alone anything resembling a chromosome.
1: Like ever, there isn't technology that, that we haven't yet got that might be able to do it in the future.
0: So that's the thing, it, it's not a technology problem, it's a preservation problem. Right. Because what you're talking about is not even soft tissue, you're talking as in, you know, skin is actually quite tough in the grand scheme of things. It is designed to resist the outside and keep the inner bits of you safe from the outer world. But skin, you know, we can abrade it quite easily. When we die, it doesn't last very long, let alone bits of your cells. DNA is, in the grand scheme of things as a molecule, is, is actually quite stable. And we do get bits of it from ancient bones. But those are usually tens to hundreds of thousands of years old. I think the record is something like 1.2 million. And that was very, very, very unusual and unexpected. And also, again, very, very, very fragmentary. And we're now talking about a hundred times Longer, But yeah, so even if you had this outrageous situation where some dinosaur died in a cave, dried out perfectly, and then stayed dried out perfectly in those conditions for 65 plus million years, we also then have to find it (laughs) and not destroy it whilst getting it out and seal it hermatically and make sure that we can extract the data that we can without polluting or anything else and even then you're still probably talking about getting tiny bits of fragments of dna out of it whereas of course what you need is the genome you know it's, it's it's like getting five words from a book it's amazing that you got those five words but you're not getting the bible from it
1: So you've published work on the behaviour of extinct species, and I'm just wondering if you could explain how you study the behaviour of an extinct animal using just fossil records.
0: So a few basic things we can do, like, you know, carnivores have sharp teeth. We tend to find broken bones of what they ate inside them. We tend to find chunks taken out of bones of the things we thought they were eating. That's a very basic thing. But we can do much more complicated things than that. So, one thing I've worked on quite a lot is signaling and communication. So, let's go back to Protoceratops, because this is why I work on Protoceratops, our, our little, you know, kind of mini Triceratops. So, an absolute classic example of sexual display is that whatever your big display feature is, or that's an important part of, you know, mating rituals or mating competition, whether that's, you know, horns in deer or cows or the big plumes on peacocks or things like this grow when the animal is basically sexually mature and they tend to grow very, very fast at that point. So we can look at the growth trajectory of an animal and you look at a cow and they've got the kind of famous, you know, knock-kneed, long-legged babies and then they kind of grow into their body and then about the time they hit nearly full size, they go from having tiny stubby little horns to whoop, you know, you've got a bull in front of you. And so that progression of pattern of one part of the body versus the sexual one, which in this case is the horns, is really distinctive. And that holds true across fish and birds and cows and, you know, all kinds of different things. Well, when you've got everything from embryos and babies all the way up to being adults, we can do that in protoceratops as well. And so this is a project I've done a couple of times with some different techniques, beginning with my PhD student, Andy Knapp, and led a big project on this a couple of years ago, and basically looking at that growth. And yet, lo and behold, the big frill that you get on the back of the head of protoceratops, and indeed, almost all the other ceratopsians, so triceratops and all of its relatives... Basically, it starts very, very small in babies and is tiny and grows only a tiny bit. And then about the size that they hit what we think is sexual maturity, it grows really, really fast and it's the fastest growing bit of the body. So this pattern is absolutely universal. And here we have it in a dinosaur, in a thing that looks like a big display structure. So it's a pretty reasonable inference. That's what it's for.
1: If a human was dropped into the Mesozoic era... How long do you think that have lasted?
0: Well, probably quite a long time because, you know, there is this general phenomenon of animals that haven't encountered something novel. Not just people, but people are a good example of this, where they really don't know how to respond to them. Most anti-predator behaviours are learned behaviours. Animals are not born knowing that thing's dangerous or animals that look like this will attack you or if this kind of shadow goes overhead, run for cover. There's even been some footage of some of this from, you know, Indonesia in particular. We've got these incredible mountains and incredible valleys that are almost impossible to traverse. And there are places that people have, you know, no human has basically ever visited or only extremely rarely. And you go there and the animals walk up to you because they don't know what you are and they don't know if you're a threat or not. And the quickest way to learn is to go and investigate. And I think that would probably be true of most dinosaurs. I think if, you know, you got dropped in front of a T-Rex, its response would not be to try and bite you in half it would be very interested in sniffing you and working out what you are and possibly taking a nibble to find out but it <laughs> you know but it but it it's not just going to just that's food and charge and try and eat you and and nor would anything else and therefore I think, you know, you, the idea you'd be you know, snapped up in the first five minutes is is very, very unlikely. And of course, humans have a real advantage over, you know, almost any other living species in the ability to project. Things don't like being hit in the face. And the, and the fact that we can throw rocks and sticks and things really quite accurately and hit things that are a distance away is incredibly off-putting to almost any animal because, of course, you know, eyes and nose and sensitive things like this. So I, I wouldn't want to try, but I would like to think that, you know, a good bag of rocks and a decent aim would actually fend off most things most of the time. Long term, <laughs> you're not doing very well. But I think there's this myth that like, yeah, you, you get dropped and you're, you're eaten in five minutes. I, I think that's very untrue. <laughs>
1: I'm Ros Taylor with news of Oh God, What Now?, the politics podcast that's never going to leave its voter ID at home. On Friday's show, it's six months until the US election, and Donald Trump is stuck sitting on trial in a New York courthouse. Is he bulletproof, or can Joe Biden turn around the polls? In the second half, it's local elections week, but we've steadily taken power away from local authorities. What if we gave it back? And in the extra bit for supporters, is there a right level of ruthlessness in politics? That's Oh God What Now with me, Ros Taylor, Raphael Bear, Hannah Fern, guest Nikki McCann Ramirez, out now, wherever you get your podcasts. So the good news is if we landed in the Mesozoic era now, we'd probably be okay. Bah the odd Dino Nibble. That's all from us today on Why? Thank you to Dr. David Hone.
0: Thank you for having me on.
1: We'll be back with more scientific anomalies, conundrums and weird facts soon. Don't forget to follow the podcast so you don't miss an edition and follow us on social media too. Links are in the show notes. I've been Emma Kennedy asking... Why? See you next time. Why was written and presented by Emma Kennedy. The lead producer was Anne-Marie Luff, and the audio producer was me, Jade Bailey. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis, and the group editor is Andrew Harrison. Artwork is by Jim Parrott, and our theme music is by DJ Food. Why? It's a Podmasters production.